Well, good morning, church family. Let me add my welcome. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I have the great joy of looking with you at this incredible psalm together. So would you pray with me as we come? God, our Father, we come and we acknowledge as we come, these words are words from you. So we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds that we could see you here and that we'd be changed people. We ask it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I I suspect I'm not the only person in this room whose prayer life is much better when I'm in trouble than when things are going well. Here's what I mean. When I've had something go wrong, or even more if I've done something wrong, maybe not even morally wrong, but just say dumb or stupid, suddenly my prayer life gets really good because I need something from God. And my tail's in a crack, and I need him to help me get out. But you know how this goes. If he does that, and everything starts going well again, I'm off onto the next thing, not even usually remembering to say thanks, much less stop and really pray any kind of real prayer of praise to God who has taken care of me. I'm a really good prayer if things are going badly. I stink at it if things are going well. And I recognize some of you are far more holy than I am, but I suspect a lot of you are in the exact same spot I am. What does that say about me? Well, here's what I think it says about me. I think it says that at the end of the day, I don't really believe God's the one who got me through. Now, understand, please, at one level, cognitively, I do believe that. My theology is fine, and I do really believe God's the one who gives us everything. But at a deeper level, at a more emotional, even you could say limbic level, I so easily forget. When it really comes down to it, I take the glory that should be God's for giving me good gifts, and I start to put it in other places. And I suspect I'm not alone. In fact, if you've been here the past couple weeks, as we've done various psalms this summer, the last two psalms we looked at have been psalms about the spiritual danger when life is going badly. David on the run, David hiding in a cave, David fearing for his life, David in the land of his enemies, and all the spiritual dryness that can accompany that, and many of us know exactly what those psalms are about. But what if I told you that it's just as dangerous spiritually, maybe even more dangerous, when things are going well? In fact, the epitaph over ancient Israel's grave in the Old Testament was they soon forgot. That God took his people, he brought them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, planted them in a good land that gave them everything they needed, and very soon they forgot him as they enjoyed his gifts. And we do too. And Psalm 29 therefore warns us of the spiritual jeopardy, the spiritual danger when life's going well. Because the simple thing is we tend to receive the gifts and forget the giver. And into that tendency, Psalm 29 calls us to give credit where credit's due, to live a life of thanks to God for the gifts he's given us, 
to give credit where credit's due, to live a life of thanks to God for the blessings he's given us. To understand that in this psalm this morning, we're just going to ask two questions. Number one, what gives us life? Number two, to whom do we give credit? What gives us life? To whom do we give credit? So first question, what gives you life? What's the thing that when it really comes down to it, you just can't imagine living without? Maybe even literally, what could you not live without? There are a lot of answers, right? Water, air, or at least oxygen, um, food, shelter. Maybe you went more metaphorical with it and thought love, compassion, kindness. What is the thing? This is life to me. Well, I'll tell you, the ancient Israelites singing this song, this psalm, their answer in this psalm was rain. And here's why. Because rain gives crops and crops give food and food gives life. It was really that simple in ancient Israel. And this psalm will only start to make sense for us when we realize that the whole thing is actually one big word picture, one big image, an image that after last night, if you live around here, you know very well, the image of a thunderstorm. If you've got your Bible open, or if not, grab one and open it, look at the psalm. Verses three through nine, the middle core of this psalm, is all the image of one big thunderstorm moving from west to east across Israel. Look at verse three. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. In Israel, thunderstorms always come in from over the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the sun is shining down, heating the water. The clouds are billowing up and the thunder is thundering out over the Mediterranean. Verse 5 The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The thunderstorm, as it moves inland, you get both the lightning, which you've seen lightning scars twisting down a tree, but even more that downdraft. At least in my neighborhood, 80 miles an hour of wind last night that crushes the trees in front of it. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, verse 6. Syrian, like a young wild ox. These are mountain regions. If anything seems immovable, it's a huge hunk of mountain rock. But if you've ever been above treeline, when a big thunderstorm comes in, it's as if the very world around you is continually shaking. By verse 7, there's no question the voice of the Lord in this psalm means thunder because it's interspersed with flashes of what? Lightning. In fact, it keeps moving inland, verse 8. Now it's in the high desert on the other side of Israel, heading further east, breaking the cedars again now in the desert and shaking the desert of Kadesh. The downdraft, verse 9, strips every leaf off the forest. This is not just a thunderstorm. This is a massive thunderstorm. So verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the deluge. This is one big picture of a gigantic ancient Near Eastern thunderstorm. Now, what would you feel in light of that? Well, depending on where you live in the area, right now you're feeling remarkably inconvenienced because we got power back at 4.30 in the morning last night. I don't know how it worked for you. More often in our context, 
you might be seeing all these images of power. If you've ever been caught out in this, fear is the first emotion that comes to my mind. Here's why. Um, My mom didn't hear this story for 15 years after it happened. Um, In my 20s, I was hiking out in Colorado with some friends. We were peaking a 14er. We did everything right. We were up to the top before noon. We were on the way back down. But sometimes you do everything right and still everything goes wrong. The rain and thunderstorms came in early. And we were hiking around a little sort of outcrop of rock. I was looking to my left and there was a bright big flash. Not close enough to feel heat, praise the Lord, but close enough that it was as if somebody threw all four of us to the ground instantly. Later, one of my friends asked me, he said, did you go figure out how close it was? I said, no. At that moment, I had one desire and it was to get my full self off that mountain. We ran down 3,000 feet of granite. One of my water bottles is still somewhere on that mountain. Now, even today, if we're out on a lake, if we're in a field and it starts clouding up and you hear it start rumbling, you will see me get visibly antsy and nervous. Because for good reason, I have a healthy, I think appropriate fear of thunder and lightning. I respond to that image of thunderstorm with fear. I guarantee you, the ancient Israelites hearing this psalm, they didn't respond with annoyance. They didn't respond with fear. You know how they responded? Verse 9 tells you how they responded. They said, glory. They jumped up and shouted and sang and danced because this was God giving them rain. And remember, rain was crops, crops were food, food was life. This is God giving them what they need in the rain. Now, it immediately should make us ask this question to ourselves. If water was what they needed, what's the equivalent for you and me? Is it clients? Is it reputation? Is it income? Is it likes? Is it a particular person? What is that thing or even person that if we're honest, we'd say, that is life to me. I have to have that because it's what will make life work. What is that for you? What is it for me? Because here's what starts to happen. Almost imperceptibly, sometimes consciously, often subconsciously, we take that thing that we think this is life to me and we start to orient everything in our life around getting it. If it's popularity, then you will do everything you do in the lunchroom or on the playground or at sports practice to get it. If it's money, you will do everything you do. You will work yourself to the bone until you get it. If it's that person, you will do everything you could possibly do to orient your life around making sure you have found that someone. Do you realize what you do, what we do when we do this? Functionally, we have just made that thing a God for ourselves. We may not call it that, but we've oriented everything in our life around serving it. And here's the thing we've got to realize. These things are actually good gifts in their place. Do you know, the Israelites actually needed rain to live. That's not false. But good gifts make terrible gods. Those gods, in fact, will never ever satisfy, and they'll usually, in fact, destroy us. 
You've seen the same studies I have. If you win the lottery, you know how happy you are compared to when, before you won the lottery? Within just a few months, the exact same happiness. God's never satisfied. In fact, usually they destroy us. Go to the novel Moby Dick. Look at, King, look at Captain Ahab. Everything that he could have possibly held dear was destroyed by chasing the white whale. Um, a little more modern, 2005, um, David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, but a man who understood these dynamics incredibly well, said this. It's something we've read once before from this pulpit, but listen to what he said. He was giving a speech at Kenyon College. He said, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never ever have more power over others that will numb you for your fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's they're unconscious, their default settings. Question number one, what's life to you? What's life to me? And that puts us into the heart of this psalm to question number two, to whom do we give credit? You know, some of you are engineers, and when I said, what do you need to, lie, to live? You immediately went, oxygen, food, water, and those are things you really do need. This is not a psalm that says, well, hey, just think about Jesus and you don't need anything else. This is a psalm that says, God knows you need that stuff. But recognize it's his gift, not your God. Now, here's where the psalm gets interesting. The Canaanites sang all these same things, maybe even this same song, to their god, Baal. The Canaanites gave all these same images. We have lots of these hymns in various places. We've seen how this has been done as archaeologists have dug it up. And the Canaanites were saying all this same stuff about Baal. In fact, Baal was the rain god. Now, when I say that, don't freak out. That doesn't mean the God of your Bible is Baal. Quite the opposite. It's the Bible saying to the Canaanites, you guys are so close. Don't you see it? You're right. You can't make it rain. You do need somebody else to do this for you, but the Bible's saying it's not Baal who does that for you. It's the true God. The God of Israel, his name is Yahweh. And this was Israel's perennial temptation. They came from Egypt. God brought them out from a land that was a river culture. You do not get crops or food in Egypt because it rains, because it never rains in Egypt. You get crops and food in Egypt because it rains way up at the top of the Nile in Ethiopia. And then the river floods. Israel knew how to deal with that culture. But now God had taken them out of there. 
and had brought them and had settled them in a land where the river was useless for agriculture. The Jordan River for much of its course is below sea level. Israel lived up in the hills. You couldn't use that river to water your crops. Modern Israel can because they have electric pumps. Ancient Israel couldn't. And by the way, you'd be forgiven except if it's at flood stage for mistaking the Jordan River for a trout stream. And so God settled his people in a land where if it didn't rain, they couldn't eat. And for that reason, the temptation for Israel was always to go to their Canaanite neighbors and ask them, how does your garden grow? And the Canaanites were quite happy to tell them how. Here's how it works. You call out and pray to Baal. You give Baal praise. You give Baal sacrifices. You even cut yourself and bleed for Baal. And if you do, he might, he just might send you rain. And the Israelites were always tempted, therefore, to take the gifts of the true God and instead give praise to Baal for the rain they'd received. Now, you realize you and I do the same thing, right? Now, probably not praising Baal of the Sidonians or something like that, though in a multicultural town like ours, there are probably a number of us here who actually do tend to give praise to their God for having given them what they need. The Bible says to you what it said to those Canaanites, you are so close to the right place. But all that provision, all that giving of what you needed, it actually hasn't been the God you think who's been giving to you. It's been the true God, the God of the whole world, the one who's found in Jesus Christ. He's been taking care of you even if you didn't know what his name was. Now, to most of us in the room, though, you're probably not actually chasing any of those gods. Here's what's happening for a lot of us. What's that thing that I can't live without? And by the way, it really, remember, can be a good thing if I recognize it's a gift, not a god. Well, we go to our non-Christian friends and we do the exact same thing the Israelites did with the Canaanites. We look at them and say, how does your garden grow? Because if you look at them, they've figured out how to make it work in this town. They know if you just do this, you'll be successful at work. If you just do this, people will like you. If you just do this, you'll build power. If you just have this, they tell us the means to the end. They say, do this and you'll get that thing you need. It might be a self-help book. It might be a method. It might be a way of living. It might be a way of treating other people. And we are tempted then to adopt that thing and orient our whole life around it. Because if I just please that thing, follow that method, then I'll get what I need. So you realize we just did it again. We just made that thing practically our God. And so look, if you look at this Psalm, if you hear this and say, I don't believe those Canaanites worshiped Baal. He's just a myth. Yes, he was a myth. But whether your God is Vishnu whether your God is yourself and your reputation or your income or anything else, you realize we do the exact same thing. Next time something goes right in life, ask yourself, who gave me that gift? Who did it come from? The Bible puts it before you and says, it's the God of the world. And one more thing, this Psalm gives us just a tiny hint that there's even more than that going on. Look at verse 10. 
It says God sits enthroned, how long? Forever. And it says over the flood. Now I never have noticed this in this Psalm until this week. It's this incredibly curious little point. That word, the flood, only gets used 11 times in our Bible. It gets used here, and then it gets used 10 times all in the story of Noah. Now here's what's interesting. If you study the story of Noah, you find out that that story itself, the flood is more than just a rainstorm. That flood itself is a reference back to the beginning of time, Genesis 1, where God is hovering over the waters, the chaotic swirling waters that have no order and no life. So when you say the flood, it's just a little hint that there's actually something outside of time going on here, not just rain inside of time. How does that work? Let me show you. Think about it for just a moment longer. God gives us what we need. So suppose for the rest of your life, God gives you water and food and all that you need and you praise him for it, and we should, still eventually the body wears out and we hit the end of our life and we will die and that water and that food and all that other stuff will not have sustained us forever. I was talking to a family friend, a really good friend. We've been having a lot of talks. He's not a Christian yet, but he is just on the edge And he said to me, he goes, you realize none of us are going to get out of this thing alive. (laughs) John chapter four, Jesus is talking to a woman. She's a Samaritan woman and he's a Jew. And that actually is as bad of a racial division as many that our world deals with today. And in the discussion, he asks her for some water from a well. Here's what she says back. She says, why are you talking to me? I'm not a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And here's what he answers her. He doesn't even address that question. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and flocks and herds. And Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Bible's simple picture is you and I have things that we need that they're life to us, that are beyond just this life. In fact, things that are even more important than the things of this life. So the same two questions, not about this life, but eternal life. One, what do we really need? And when it comes to eternal life, it's no longer water to drink. It's eternal living water. It's no longer food to eat. It's an eternal feast. What do we need to be part of that? We need, to put it quite simply, to be right with God. And every human being, whether we bury it down, whether we hide it, whether we cover it with a transactional method, whether we cover it with our ego, whether we just don't think about it, at some level knows we're not. We have not done this life as we ought. Some may have done it better than others, but none of us have done it the way it ought be. And what that means is we need a righteousness 
that's beyond us. We need a righteousness that has to be given to us. We need to be made right with God. And that yields the second question, to whom do we give the credit? If we try to give the credit to ourselves, I promise you it's a treadmill you will get on and it will never work. You will go just as hard after that as you do after money or beauty or popularity or anything else, and it will never satisfy and it will grind you into oblivion. You're just doing the religious version of the same thing, trying to make ourselves the God this time. Um, Jack Welch, who famously led GE, said, control your own destiny or someone else will. And so we make ourselves God, which is actually just the mistake of Genesis 3 all over again. Here's what the scripture offers you instead. By the end of that gospel of John, the Jesus who'd been talking to that woman had actually died on a cross. And he had risen from the grave to give her and any who would follow him that eternal living water. But now it was no longer Baal who insisted that they cut themselves and bleed for him. It was Jesus who had bled for her and for you and for me. Last thing, look at verse 11. The psalm ends with peace. How do we get peace? What a thought that we could actually stop striving, stop pushing, stop struggling. How do you get that peace? Well, you only get that peace when you realize Somebody else did it for you. In this life, if we feel like we have to earn what we need to survive, we have to do what it takes to get the income, to get the reputation, to get the success, we will never have peace because we'll always keep pushing further. And in the life to come, if we think we need to earn our status with God, to be right with God because we did enough good, I promise you we will never have peace. You will always push further and harder. You'll never rest. The rest comes when we realize it's a gift and we quit confusing the gift with the giver. Wouldn't that be a wonderful life? Being able to sit still and be at peace and know I can stop striving. It's right there for you. How would life be practically different if you did that? You might come home from work earlier next week. You might actually skip that extra drink. You might actually play with the kids. You might actually be willing, here's a crazy thought, to thank God for the things that he's given us instead of feeling like we've got to earn them ourselves. That whole life is there for you and it's there in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So let's pray and then let's praise him together. God, our Father, we come before you. We praise you. We thank you. Thing after thing after thing that we would make our own credit is actually your blessing on us. So we repent of taking those good gifts and forgetting you who gave them to us. We turn ourselves back to you. We know there's one way we could do that and we do it in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray it, amen.